Hi everyone, it's Christina from Classroom Diva Dialogues. Uh, it's been a while since I've recorded an episode um, with the school year getting started. I kind of had to take a little break, but this episode is very important and it's pretty big. Talking about uh, cultural bias and being a socially and racially conscious educator. Uh, it's very important because we here in the US are going through a racial reckoning And I believe we're just scratching the surface of how racism and bias are baked in our country's history and in our systems, including education. And while I'm seeing many efforts to address this by teachers, by buying books, starting book clubs, the interactions we have with our students is going to make the biggest impact. Um, Our impact can demonstrate what it is to be racially and socially conscious thinkers So we build um, citizens who are aware. Um, Huge disclaimer, I am not a social scientist or an anti-racist expert. I am a black woman, wife, parent, teacher who wants to have a conversation of where we can start to acknowledge and start dismantling systematic racism and bias here in our classrooms in the United States. So I call the doctor. I called my cousin, Dr. Sakina, but she is a pediatric neuropsychologist at the Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in Tampa, Florida. I needed some signs, y'all. And I love her so much. And she and I just had a wonderful conversation. So please listen in to what we talked about. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. It's Christina, and welcome to another episode of Classroom diva dialogues today i have a very special guest with me because of the topic as i said in my intro i am not an expert at all in this i am simply uh, a, a, a woman a an american a mom a teacher and these things have been on my mind so i thought i'd bring in someone who is very uh well educated in this area so i brought Dr. Sakina Butt from Johns Hops, John Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, but I know her as my cousin, Kina. So she's here, and Kina, thank you so much for being here with us. No, I'm happy to do this. This is exciting, and um, I love that we get to chat in this kind of space, Chrissy. <laughs> Absolutely. So I always ask my guests to share their educator journey, but you're a neuropsychologist, and I don't think too many people n- have heard of a neuropsychologist. So if you could just briefly share your journey, how you've gotten into this field. Okay. Um, so I'll start with just saying what a neuropsychologist is in pretty basic terms. Um, so it's a branch of psychology that looks at the link between brain and behavior. My job is to do evaluations for kids who have had things happen to them, whether they were born with them or they've had some kind of an accident or trauma, and how does that impact the way in which they are thinking and behaving and learning. Um, So that's the overall view of what a neuropsychologist is. In terms of how I landed as a neuropsychologist, um, I would say I didn't start out always knowing that I wanted to be that because, as Chrissy said, very few people even know what that is. 
when you start out in training. Um, but I did know that I wanted to be a pediatric psychologist or working with children with chronic illnesses starting in undergraduate school because I was able to work with a wonderful mentor and um, pediatric researcher and really loved my work with families of kids with cystic fibrosis and diabetes. Um, and so I knew I would be a psychologist working in healthcare. And then I went to grad school at uh, Florida School of Professional Psychology in Tampa. And that's when I started learning all about the world of testing and assessment and really fell in love with um, the detective part of it, I call it, is um, it's really a puzzle trying to figure out um, how we can relate these brain behavior um, correlations or brain behavior phenomenon into day-to-day -day care. What does that mean for the patient and families? Um, and so starting in graduate school through internship when I was in Miami and fellowship, um, I really just honed my skills in that area, but I think what I loved about the work and the populations that I choose to um, develop expertise in is that they lend themselves to being very much diverse. And mm -hmm. I really just, um, I, I don't know, I just really live in diversity and I, I love every minute of it. I don't think I'd have it any other way. Um, yeah. Inclusion and I like being able to see people and families of all different kinds, all different backgrounds, or even just not even like-minded, but just the varied experiences that each one brings and how that continues to challenge me in growth as an individual and then also as a neuropsychologist. So that's my journey. Yeah. Well, thank. yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, yeah, it's so true because I, I also work in, in a very diverse school and and not just the diversity of the of the race and the ethnicity, but just mindsets and thinking. And that and, and that and that was something that we both uh, had an aha moment in, in in our pre podcast discussion is that as as our country is changing and being diverse, a lot of our families are coming across professionals um, that may not match their same background and mindset. And so even more reason why I'm, I'm glad that we're having this talk today about being a racially and, and socially conscious teacher in a sense, but also a person no matter what field you're in. Yeah, and exactly, because I think that happens across fields. It's definitely something that um, neuropsychology and psychology in general um, acknowledges, uh, and it's it's been this way for a while, and unfortunately, it's continued to remain this way. Although you know there are a lot of efforts and um, initiatives and actions, especially as of late, to help correct that and minimize that um, disparity between provider and patient or teacher and um, student that they're educating. Um, but I agree. I think the more that we embrace being open and um, I like to use the term culturally humble, mm -hmm. um, which you know just means that we are inclusive and we're accepting that you don't have to be of the same mind, look the same way or be of the same background, but everybody is an individual and their uniqueness can be enriching. I think that that really um, does help solidify relationships of every kind, including teacher student. Wow, I really like that phrase, culturally humble. 
And I, I oh, wow. I really love that. Yeah. 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 It's not mine, so I can't take credit for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a phrase. Um, I think I became aware of it in the recent past because in my field, we are educated and it's a major tenet of training to be culturally competent. And mm. as of late with um, things that have been going on just in general um, and in social media and in our day-to-day -day lives, I think those of us in our field as psychologists realized, could you ever be competent? And started to challenge our mindset of, you can always strive for competence, yes. but I don't necessarily know if it makes sense that we can actually be competent. What we're really trying mm. to do by saying we're culturally competent is we're aiming to be culturally humble. And I, that's yes. where cultural humility comes in. And I just think that that's a much better representation of what everyone um, should be should be doing and what everybody should be striving to do, including teachers in their classroom. Absolutely. And I'm going to quote my girl, Brene Brown, she always say, she always says, it's not about being right. It's about trying to get it right. Like mm -hmm. We're constantly progressing toward our goal and, and realizing that we may not always get there. We always have to be a learner. And that kind of ties into the whole like growth mindset and fixed mindset, you know, right. because people think that, oh, I need to just be this and that's it. No, it, it is a constant progression of growth. I mean, and that is in every aspect of just being a human being, mm -hmm. but, but that's a great mindset to have, especially when, when it comes to being much more um, socially and racially conscious. Uh, people think, oh, I'm not racist. That's it. No, slow your roll there. Yet we all have, 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 have biases that we need to work through and be much more aware. So um, I love that. Yeah. 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 Being culturally humble because we're not all going to attain being culturally competent. Yeah. yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up the bias piece because I think some of us, when we're trying to be better people, I think people set themselves up for failure because yes. they think that being the best self, it means that there, there is no bias in them at all. Yeah. And yeah. I think one of the things that psychology has taught us is that everyone has implicit bias. Yes. It's part of our natural being. It's genetic. It's, yep. it's part of how we function. It's the way our brain works. Um, and it's actually adaptive in some respects. Um, and so there's no way you can get around being biased. But I think when you're culturally humble and you push yourself for growth, what you do is not actively try to eliminate those biases you actively just try to make yourself aware yes. of the biases that you have the reasons why you have those biases and then really link that to how do these biases affect me in my day-to-day -day life whether it be my profession my personal life how does it affect my thinking my actions and the choices that i make yeah i'm glad i'm glad you brought up the biological portion of bias because I never thought of it being biological. I always thought of bias as being something cultural because I, I always saw it as like, like bias is baked into our culture, which it is, you mm -hmm. know, but, but I, I never thought about it being like, Oh, we're just wired that way to have a bias. Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah. when you think about it, our brain really has to do so much. We take advantage. I mean, we take, we um, take it for granted just how much, our cognitive processing is happening in the simplest of tasks, like walking out your front door and unlocking your car, for example. Mm. 
um, and biases work to help to limit the amount of decision making that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's what I mean by they can be adaptive, in other words, functional, because we yeah. have to be able to take a shortcut. Yeah. A lot of the times, otherwise we'd all be overloaded and none of us would be able to be successful or manage the multiple roles we all have. Um, so it doesn't make sense if you understand bias from that perspective to say you're not going to be biased. You realize, oh, that's impossible. I am going to be biased. Yeah. Oh, that's a big like aha right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For anyone who just thinks like, oh, I'm not racist or, or I don't have those thoughts. Yes, you do. Yeah. It's biological. It's and, and it goes for everything. It can be adapted. Not just, yeah, not just racism, but ageism, sexism, oh, yeah. and any other ism that you think of. But even the bias of, you know, for us in Florida, um, there's a bias that the Florida Gators are the best football team. <laughs> and you know, I'm biased for multiple reasons as to why that is in my world fact. But I understand that that's a bias. And so that also then will affect the way that I think approach different people if they have an allegiance to another team like Florida State um, or, <laughs> you know, and affect uh, behavior if there is a game of rivalry. So it doesn't always have to be a bias that's related to one of these really emotional or really heavy topics. It could be a simple bias of, you know, I just really like the sports team and I feel like that's the only team that exists in my world. <laughs> or even when my husband and I have the constant argument of the fastest way to go somewhere, that's my bias working. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so in our conversation, because, you know, when this topic came to mind, I'm like, this is a big topic. And, and as I said, in in the disclaimer that I am not a social scientist, you know, but it has to be talked about. Um, going into any school year from the teacher perspective and not addressing this is just going to be such a disservice to all students that you teach, whether you teach in a predominantly white school or, or a diverse school, because as you said, bias is not just race, bias it is also with class with with uh with family makeup you know it it's just it's just endless so th th this is an awareness that we all have to think about mm -hmm. so in, in our first conversation we had a list of five habits or five mindsets i wasn't too sure what to call them and uh it was uh b being vulnerable having empathy uh being intentional being authentic and oh, what was the fifth one? Yes, it was being intentional. Yeah. Empathy. Yeah, empathy. Yes. Having yeah. empathy. And, mm -hmm. and during our conversation, uh, well, first of all, it was like that. First of all, we, we said to ourselves, that's going to be way too long. We go through all five of them. But we came to the conclusion that vulnerability and empathy, if those are traits that we embrace and consciously practice, that will grow intent being intentional that will grow authentic authentic being authentic that will grow those those other traits and habits so mm -hmm. so we're going to focus on vulnerability and having empathy and why those two things are so important and how they can help us on our journey of being more culturally humble i love that i'm going to be i'm going to borrow that one <laughs> yeah <laughs> cultural humility yeah taking on our way 
Yeah, and I love your example that you gave about um, the person falling into the pit. And I think that's a really good place to start because it helps to distinguish between sympathy and empathy. Yes. Um, and then we can start the conversation of empathy and being humble and being authentic and intentional from there. Okay. Let's do that then. Yeah. Well, first of all, I can't take credit for that cartoon. I saw it at a professional development and I believe it was from Brene Brown. Like I said, she's my girl and but she, doesn't, she just doesn't know it yet. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, but that was a big aha for me to understand the difference between empathy and sympathy. Uh, so it, it's a little cartoon. I think they're animals, if I remember correctly. And there's this one character inside of a pit and the other one comes along and looks in the pit and say, oh, that stinks. You're stuck in a pit. And that was an example of sympathy, whereas empathy, the little character went down into the pit and sat with the lonely, um, stuck. I think it was a rabbit. I, I could totally be wrong. Um, and, and that was the example of empathy. When, when, when you're displaying empathy, you're in it with that person and you're and you don't have the answers but you work through how are we going to get out of this how are we going to solve this problem hmm what can we do rather than hmm feel bad i might go find a rope for you yeah and i think the animal getting into the pit really shows the vulnerability aspect of humility and how you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So you're trying to get in there and you're trying to see what the world looks like from, we'll say the rabbit, the rabbit's eyes, because the rabbit is in the pit. But by getting in the pit with the rabbit and having that empathy, you don't necessarily know you can get back out. And so there is a vulnerability piece to whatever that animal was that joined the animal in the pit that was stuck. And I think part of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, which I would say even teachers every day going into classroom is, there is a little bit of a vulnerability in the sense of we don't necessarily want to show our weaknesses, our fears, mm -hmm. things that we're upset about, um, or maybe even we don't necessarily wanna know, want to show what actually we're excited about or what kind of gets us going. Um, which there's a place for that and boundaries are important. And, you know, I wouldn't say be an open book. I don't think yeah. that's possible. But I do think that in our approach to set the good boundaries and maintain the hierarchy of teacher and student or in my field, um, provider and patient, we forget about being human and yes. that there is a power in the vulnerability of being human and how if you don't allow yourself to go there, you block the access for the humility and the accurate empathy. Um, and so you almost have to kind of break down your defenses a little bit and take off the mask you wear to the world to in order to be able to see other people for who they really are. Yeah, so yeah. Kind of dual process of you have to be able to recognize, be comfortable and see yourself for who you really are. Otherwise, you're never, ever going to be able to do that for somebody else. Absolutely. Yeah. Taking off that mask to show your true self, to be an empathetic person. Yeah. How they're so yeah. interlocked. Yeah. Um, so that was empathy. And we, we kind of hit on uh, showing your true self. And how does that roll into 
being intentional because when when you are with your students and i'm just saying it because a lot of the audience i i talk to are teachers when you take off that mask being vulnerable you are willing to take that extra step to get on the level of that student um, when they are having a moment in the classroom. Mm -hmm. You are going to take a moment to just pause and understand what is the cause of the behavior and not focusing on the effect of the behavior. Um, Yeah, and, and taking time to really understand their issues and not seeing, um, seeing the person and not their bias. Yeah, and I think it, it, it even supersedes an individual interaction. So say teacher and student, um, it really goes into the intentionality of I'm setting up my classroom, I'm setting up my school environment to be open and to communicate that we are willing to be empathetic and we're willing to be inclusive. Um, And that's everything from the way in which you present yourself as a teacher, but also what's in your classroom. So your setting, is it representative of all kinds? Do you have books and toys? Um, You know, even something as simple as flush colored crayons. Mm -hmm. So if your job is to draw a representation of, you know, the student or the student's family, is there a vehicle for them to do that? Yeah. Um, I think in this day of COVID, um, we're all going back to school with our PPE, which is, you need to do that. Yes. uh, Definitely necessary. I advocate that strongly. Um, But it also means that now we're limited with our read on facial um, gestures and expressions, right? So as a teacher, half your students, all you're going to be able to see are their eyes. As your students, the only thing they're going to be able to see are your eyes as a Mm. teacher. And so you're going to miss out on some of these cues that we are just by default trained to use and interpret. Um, And so the intentionality of knowing that going into the classroom, particularly now, and making sure that you're being receptive to body language and other cues so that way you can be able to get there, jump in that pit when a kid is struggling Mm. or having issues adjusting or whatever it may be, um, knowing that it's going to be a little bit of a harder challenge for teachers nowadays, but they can be mindful of that challenge and intentionally prepare for that. That's a good way of thinking. And and that was something that I was thinking of with, with, with some other teacher friends of, of using, you know, possibly like hand, signals you know mm-hmm. for for things you know to communicate feelings and 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 understanding um because you're right it's so interesting we need to take off our masks to be vulnerable while still wearing a mask um, yes you, you Talk- still need to wear your mask <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure don't take that one off. don't take that one off. <laughs> the metaphorical mask <laughs> not the real one not the real one yeah yeah um yeah, being an intentional, um, I've been seeing a lot of my teacher friends purchasing a lot of books that r- represent um, various student cultures and uh, and backgrounds. And part of being intentional, that, that's great that you have the books, but let's also be intentional in how you're integrating them and using them in the classroom. We're not just putting them aside and bringing them out when it's Asian American Appreciation Month Mm -hmm. or when it's Black History Month. Uh, It's just a constant use of these uh, 
multicultural books through your school year and through your curriculum. And, and not yeah. even with books, it's especially in the maths and in the sciences. I mean, especially in those fields, especially maths and science, because we, we know that there's a lack of representation of women in, in the STEM fields. So it's definitely bringing in um, those, those sheroes who have made gains in those fields, in your math lessons and in your science discussions. So it's not just a set aside thing. It's, a, it's an intentional integrated approach with these tools that, that you come across. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are so many games now. Um, so you had said women and sheroes, um, you know, like famous um, women in American history or famous women um, in science, like they even have games that are cool, like trivia things. So if you're just doing a break, you can use that as like a fun rainy day activity or a fun break in between task. Um, but you, that's the way that you can kind of infiltrate everything. Like it just becomes pervasive across your day-to-day -day, um, approach. And that's yeah. how you can intentionally like do that in everything from books to videos, to games, to pictures on your wall. Um, and like we had said earlier, to making sure that even your craft stuff is representative. Um, and I mean, you know, for all different things, so not just ethnicity and race, but making sure we're representing different types of family constellations, yeah. like, you know, grandparents and adults yeah. or foster. Um, and when you're talking about school age kids, that kind of stuff is extremely important. Oh, yeah. You Seeing know? you. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. They see themselves. And it's not, because kids can smell phony. Yeah. Yeah. Are you walking the walk and not just talking the talk? Yeah, and it helps the child feel like, okay, this is somewhere where I can belong. I do feel like I'm not an outsider. And that, you know, as you probably all know, goes right back into maximizing their potential for learning. Yeah, 100%. So, so, so just to summarize what we said, because I feel like that we said a lot. <laughs> Yeah, here that um, that as we approach our school year and just your walk in life, you know, you need to take down your, your mask to to show others your true self, so you can get down and 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 in people's spaces to understand them, to show empathy, and through that empathy, we can be intentional of the of the decisions that that we make in terms of planning activities and choosing literature and and the things that we do with our students mm -hmm. yeah and that'll make it where before you know it you're naturally just inclusive and children will benefit from that so much absolutely yeah yeah because i i know a lot of my educator friends are they're hungry to help change the bias that is in education you know and and i i notice a lot of people are, are are doing a lot of outward things which is a which is great but a lot of the work is also inward too mm -hmm. and, and 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 realizing that oh it can start with me by me looking into my biases and grow from there mm -hmm. exactly yeah yeah bam all right. Well, oh, I mean, look, we could keep talking and talking and talking because we always do anyway, and not just on this topic, but even just as cousins, you know, we could just keep going. <laughs> a lot of years of practice. <laughs> I know, right? So 
this is called the classroom diva dialogue. So how are you a diva when it comes to self-care or in, in your field? You choose. Um, well, I think I'll, <laughs> I, I'm probably more of a diva in my professional life. And that's probably not as interesting. I think <laughs> what's really interesting is that, um, especially as psychologists, mind body and, um, you know, self-care and personal growth. This is stuff that we live in, we teach, um, but I don't practice what I preach. And so I think how I can be a diva in my self-care is probably a much more interesting topic because I'm not good <laughs> at it at all. Um, <laughs> honesty there, I'm just, I'm not. It's something I struggle with. But recently I can say that I have done a lot of introspection into why that is that I am not as much of a diva in self-care and <laughs> um, and I come up with a lot of different reasons or quote-unquote excuses um, but I think one of the things that I really challenged myself on was my own self-care with my hair and so as an African-American woman hair is such an integral part of who we are. I oh, yes. It's, it's huge. It's a big thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have for years, ever since I could make money myself and do it, have uh, <laughs> like religiously every six to eight weeks relaxed my hair, which means I straightened it. So remove the natural look of my yeah. hair. And, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons that I don't even know if I fully become self-aware of what all those reasons are. I would say that my excuses were that it was more manageable and it was more conforming to my professional life. And so it's just what I did. Yeah. Um, and I never really thought about it again. And it was something that I did throughout my younger adult life. And now that I am 40, um, so this journey started at 39-ish. Oh, yeah. I started thinking, what is this doing to me? Why am I doing this? Why is this so important to me? Um, and is this something that I feel is important for my self-care? And I decided that, no, it's not. And I embarked on my hair journey where I have decided to embrace whatever grows out of my head. And, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> And so I stopped getting um, my periodic or religious relaxers um, about probably eight months. I'm almost a year now. And I have been exploring different hairstyles, so everything from wigs to weaves to braids. I'm really liking the braids. I have those in right now. Um, and they're super easy to manage. So just for anybody who has braids, I am now, I understand what it's all about and I feel you and I love them. Um, but I think it was really important for me to take ownership of that because it is tied to our identity and oh my, yeah. who knows what message I'm giving to other, like the younger generation or other children in my work or in my personal life. Um, you know, was that something that I was communicating? It's not okay to be yourself. Yeah. And I wasn't happy with that. Yeah. I don't want to give that message. And so yeah. that's me being a diva as of late, never too late. So that's right. Coming into my forties. That's I right. have now started to be a diva about who I am and what I look like in my self-care. And then we'll add on the other stuff. Later. There we go. <laughs> Everyone has to start somewhere yeah, well, at some time. Big step. <laughs> You're never too late. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanking, th- th- thank you for what you're doing to help our future, which is our children in your field. And thank you for being a guest today. Thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I think we should do it again. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we can do it on a more like different topic that we're used to, like movies. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. That would be hilarious yeah. <laughs> for citing all the movies that we know. We I think we'll probably just I think we'll just end up like just laughing the whole time. Yeah, we people would. won't even understand what we're saying. No, we would. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again so much, Kina. I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Chrissy. All right. Love you. Bye. Bye. What a great conversation. I am so glad I called her. So there, friends, um, as we walk into our classrooms, whether you're virtual, brick or mortar, uh, let's walk in with our bias awareness, knowing that we are wired for biases, but our biases can be adapted. And as we get to know our students, let's see ourselves as students learning from our students and their perspective, um, known as cultural humility. Like I said earlier, I love that and I'll be using that a lot. And that's a great starting point because as we continue to be culturally humble, we will be more vulnerable and lead to intentionality. We can definitely be great models for being culturally um, and racially um, aware um, and whatnot. So, Oh, side note, I did look up the Brene Brown video of sympathy versus empathy. It is a bear and a fox. So I did look that up. It was not a rabbit. Uh, Also, a great plug, check out the Curtis Scott King book book list if you are looking for some great diverse literature to integrate in your classes. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure that you rate us and tune into next time. Until then, take care and be a diva. Bye.